Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you again for being here this morning. I'm glad that you are here. We've been doing a series for the last few weeks where we're going through the book of Acts. I've asked a couple times that you'd be reading on your own, just letting God speak to you in your own devotional time, your own quiet time with the Lord. Hopefully you're you're taking good notes and just making a record of what God is speaking to you. We started in Acts chapter 1, the first verse of the book of Acts, talks about the gospel of Luke, refers to it, and refers to it by saying that it was all that Jesus began to do and teach. So all that's included in the gospel accounts, the miracles, the teaching, the amazing things that Jesus did, his his death, burial, resurrection, that was just the beginning of what Jesus continues right up until this morning, right now, what he still wants to do and what he still wants to be taught to people, that he's alive and well, he's living in us, and he wants to minister through people like you and me by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we start off talking about that. Then we went to Acts chapter 2 and talked about the day of Pentecost or the day when God poured out his spirit, made the the Holy Spirit available in this new dimension that he referred to as baptism in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, before you do anything, just wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we talked about this second work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, that Holy Spirit's working in salvation, but there is a second work of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit's in you, but then there's an immersion, a a being filled to overflow, covered up with the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would become available. We compared it to having water in you as, as salvation to be, you know, completely submerged as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I said, if I you know, drank a bottle of water before I came up on the platform, you probably wouldn't notice I've got water in me. But if I did a cannonball into a pool and then climbed out and ran up here, I, I couldn't hide it from you. you. You'd know right away. I'd be soaking wet, dripping all over. That's the picture that Jesus gave us of baptism in the Holy Spirit, that we would be covered, filled up, rivers of living water flowing out of us. And that, that's what God wants for each one of us to have that dimension of the presence of God residing in us and on us and around us. We said a couple of things about baptism in the Holy Spirit that week. We said that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not just for a moment. It's not supposed to be just an experience that you have uh, a neat afternoon or a great revival service or a fun time at youth camp and you had this powerful experience and that's all it is. You can kind of punch your card, you receive the baptism. It's supposed to be a new dimension, a new way of living. You're living a spirit-filled life. We looked at the Apostle Peter that when he experienced baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, that wasn't just one afternoon where he just got out of character and just you know, got crazy for an afternoon then went back to his, his normal life. He was changed from that point forward. He ministered powerfully, effectively. He gave his life to it. And you could see the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit from that point moving forward, clear up until the day he died. So when we relegate baptism in the Holy Spirit just to being uh, an experience that we have, and then we move on, we're misunderstanding how significant baptism in the Holy Spirit 
is, that it's, it's a spirit-filled life from that moment on, that we need to keep ourselves filled and allow the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we said baptism in the Holy Spirit's not just for a moment, and it's not just speaking in tongues. That speaking in other tongues is part of it. It's the, the evidence, and you receive this amazing prayer language. Thank God for being able to pray in other tongues. It's wonderful. I, I honestly, I genuinely don't know what I would do without a, a prayer language. I, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I'd function without being able to take time to pray in the Holy Spirit. So if that's all it was, it would be wonderful, but it's so much more than just praying in the Holy Spirit. So if we relegate baptism in the Holy Spirit to a moment, we're, we're missing it. And if we relegate it just to we, we are able to speak in tongues, we're missing it as well. We took time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that talks about nine different gifts of the Spirit, which again isn't the entire spectrum of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it helps to open our eyes and stretch our expectation of what being a Spirit-filled believer is all about and the potential that we have by this gift, this empowerment that God, that God has given us. Last week, if you were here, we talked about being hungry and thirsty for God. That when the, the people heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost, that their response was, what must we do? What, you, you tell us what we need to do, anything. I've got to have what you're talking about. From that response, you can tell there was genuine desire. There was a hunger. It wasn't just, hey, that, that's really interesting, Peter. Thank you for sharing that. You, you tell, tell me, I've got to have what you're talking about. It's so important for you and I to be hungry and thirsty. And a lot of times, maybe all of the time, what limits God from doing something in our lives and in our church is the fact that we don't really want him to do things in our life and in our church, that we can say the right things out of religion or out of expectation just because we know that's what we're supposed to say and what we're supposed to sing and express ourselves. But in our heart of hearts, are we really thirsty and hungry for a move of God, an encounter with the presence of God? Or is the reality is that we're pretty content the way that things are. We just kind of like checking in and checking out and just moving on with our day and singing a couple of nice songs, say, say a few words, hopefully you say something funny and let us, let us get out of here. If we're content with that, then that's all we'll ever have. We'll never go further than where we're hungry to go. We talked about how important it is to be hungry, to cultivate a thirst for the things of God. And we read a number of different passages, Old Testament, New Testament, where you can see repeatedly God moves in the lives of people that are thirsty. There are specific invitations given to receive the Holy Spirit, to come to Jesus, to come and drink, to come and receive, to come and find satisfaction. Those invitations go out, all who are thirsty, all those who hunger and thirst. There, there is a call to God. God is looking for people that are hungry for what he has to give him. And it's as if God lacks the ability to really pour himself out in people that aren't genuinely hungry, hungry and thirsty. We've got to be thirsty to have a, a holy dissatisfaction for staying the same and just plateauing in our walk with the Lord. Amen. That there is a deeper place. There's a sweeter place. There's a higher place. There's a richer place of fellowship with the Lord, of what it means to come into the house of God. But we've got to be hungry and thirsty for it. Amen. So we're going to continue this morning and we're going to finish up Acts chapter 2. Next week we'll get into Acts chapter 3 and we'll talk specifically about healing. I'd love for you to be praying and believing with me next week that we're going to see people's bodies healed. We'll pray for people that need a touch in their body. So if that's you, make sure that you're here. Bring people that you know that are, are struggling with sickness and infirmity of any kind. But this week we're going to focus on Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. 
You know, one of the benefits of being able to look at the book of Acts, and we mentioned it last week, is that you get to see the church in its, in its purest form, that it's, it's early on, so obviously it's, it's going to grow and, and develop over time, but there are a lot of things we can see as key building blocks or foundational for what God was, was doing in the early church. So if we want what they experienced, <clears throat> excuse me, if we want to have the kind of impact that these men and women had, if we want to see the miracles and just see the manifestations and enjoy the fellowship and have the, have the impact that they had, I mean, they shook a community, shook the world, then there are certain things that we need to make sure are a part of our lives and a part of our church. So we're able to go back and, and look at these key things. So Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 40. This is after Peter preaches on the, the day of Pentecost. Verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord, we talked about that before, the importance of being in one accord. That's the environment God moves. They were all together on the day of Pentecost in one accord, the same mind, the same heart. There was, there was unity. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. There it is again, simplicity. It means oneness of heart. It's the same idea as being in one accord. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord was adding daily. The church was growing. The church was expanding. Why? Because the Lord was adding daily those who were being what? Those who were being saved. The people that were causing the church to grow, the numbers that were increasing, they were increasing. Why? Because people were being saved. Saved from what? Saved from a life of sin? Saved from an eternity separated from the presence of God? Saved from a lake of fire? Saved from going to hell? They were being saved. Salvation was taking place, and that's why the church was growing. When we talk about church growth, sometimes we can miss the significance of what's really at the heart and what the root of the matter is. People need to be saved. There are people all around us that if they were to die right now, they would spend forever, forever, Ever and ever. No, there's, no, there's no second chance. In, in hell, away from the presence of God. Right now, our church has a vision to, to grow to a point where we're 1,000 strong. That's what we're aiming at. We want to hurry up and get there. That, that's not the, the finish line. That's just a, a goal to achieve. And then we'll set a new vision and continue to stretch ourselves from there. We want to grow, but it's not just about church success or growth for the sake of growth. People need to be saved. We, the Lord was adding daily to their number those who were being saved. They're being rescued. They're being snatched out of the fires of hell. They're being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear son. That's what was happening. And everything that we do, that, that is the root, that is the heart of it. God wants people to be saved. 
So as, as we look at some of the keys in the early church, there was a, an environment where the church was operating, the way they, the way they interacted, the way they, the way they functioned, that, man, people were constantly getting saved. People were being drawn into this environment, coming into the family, the family of God. So it's important that you and I function as the body of Christ properly. Again, it's not just about our comfort. It's not about having the nicest church in the area or any of those things. It's that people need to be saved. People need to be saved. So as we go back and look at some of these key factors, we want to create the kind of church that God wants to have so he can add to our number daily those who are being rescued, those who are experiencing salvation. Let's go back to verse 42. Again, we want to look for key building blocks. It says in verse 42, and they continued, they continued steadfastly. Now we'll talk a little bit about what they continued steadfastly in, but just the fact that these early, early believers, the early church, were described as continuing steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. That, that word in the Greek means to be devoted or to be constant, to be consistent, to be steadfastly attentive to, to give unremitting care to a thing. That the early believers were distinguished by their devotion, by their resolve, that they, they set the direction. There was no turning aside, no, no shrinking back. They continued. They kept on going. They were steadfast. You know, I don't know if you are like me in this way, but when it comes to being a customer, I, I just really enjoy the mindset of being a customer. I like finding products that I enjoy. I like good customer service. I really like having a good waiter or a good waitress. I get really frustrated when you get poor customer service or someone treats customers poorly or you get a product that isn't what it claims to be. And I, I like reading reviews. I like... I like leaving reviews. If I get bad service, I, I like trying to figure out a, a clever way, a pointed way to really point out, you know, that it's not what they said it was going to be. You know, the service was, was terrible. And we live, we live in a time where the way things are, that it really allows us to do those kinds of things. That it's not just a, a commercial about what a product can do and what the company claims or how good the food is from the point of view of the restaurant. That we're not limited to that. You can go online, read reviews about products. You can, I love going to Yelp and finding new restaurants and reading reviews. It's not just what they say about themselves. You can, you can hear what other people have to say. Hey, don't waste your time. It's garbage. They say it's good food. It's not good food. Trust me on this one. Don't. I, I just enjoy that. I, I like that kind of thing. I like expressing my dissatisfaction. I just do. It'll, it, I know, maybe that's shallow. You can, you know, you can leave me an online review about how shallow I am. I just, I enjoy that environment where I get to sit back and say, this was satisfactory, this was unsatisfactory. And then I can express my disdain if the situation calls for it. And when you're in that mindset, that's what being a, a customer is about. It's really about you, right? Like the customer is, is always Right, it's that you go there because you want to receive something to your pleasure, and if it's not to your pleasure, then you're not gonna go back. You, you, don't, you don't have to, to go there. 
Now, I like being a consumer that way, but a lot of times we approach church with that same kind of customer-consumer mindset that we're here to be pleased, we're here because there's a certain way that we like things, but that's not the way the church was designed to function, that they were continuing steadfastly. Whether they liked it, whether the things are good, whether the things that need to be worked out, they continued steadfastly. When you think of devotion, when you think of being loyal like a customer, that's a different kind of devotion and loyalty than the body of Christ requires of us. Maybe you've got a brand, a certain product, or a restaurant that you really like, and you would consider yourself, hey, I'm a, I'm a really loyal customer. Man, I'm a fan of that. This is the best toilet paper. You know, this is the best restaurant. They've got the best customer service. You've got certain things that you are loyal to. When you are devo devoted in that sense, your devotion is really based on their ability to keep you happy. So even though you are devoted to that brand or that store or whatever it is, really when you boil it down, your devotion isn't to them. Your devotion is to you. And as soon as they stop making you happy, as soon as they upset you, you get bad service, a couple of bad meals, and as devoted as you were before, now that they're no longer pleasing you, you're done. You're willing to walk away. So your devotion wasn't really to them. Your devotion is to you. And again, people carry that same mindset when it comes to being a part of the body of Christ. You're not supposed to be a consumer here. You're supposed to be committed here. And if we want what the early church had, they, they were continuing steadfastly. When it came to be part, being part of the body of Christ, they were all in. They were all in. They, they were fully committed. They accepted Jesus. They're part of the family of God. There's, there was no changing that. They were all in on it. And that created this environment where God could begin to move and do amazing things because there was a base level of commitment. They continued, continued steadfastly. Oftentimes in the modern church, people's commitment is as fragile as their feelings are. And as soon as their feelings are damaged, hurt, upset in any way, that along with their feelings, their, their commitment is also damaged and destroyed and they're off to the next thing. People bounce around, try to find someone that does things just the way that they want. That's unhealthy and it prevents us from being what God has called us to be as a family of God. You see it happen with, with pastors and leaders in the church that bounce from place to place and the next opportunity that has higher pay or a greater opportunity, suddenly they feel like the Lord is leading them there. And it's always just the, the next opportunity and people bounce around all the time. Now, certainly there are times where God calls people to move from one place to another. I'm not, I'm not discounting that at all. But I believe people move saying God has moved them way more often than God moves them. People are fickle and flaky and bounce all over and use the excuse that God is leading me somewhere else. And I, I, can't, I can't bridge that with the God that we see in the Bible, that he's just constantly jerking people around and go this way, nope, go that way. I, that, that does, that's not consistent with the God we see in the Bible. And it's not just church leaders. You see it trickle down and church members are that way too. People bounce around, they go to this church and then that church and then they're over at this church. And again, certainly there are times that God leads somebody, hey, you need to go, it's a new season, You're gonna, I'm, I'm moving you to a new family of believers. I can't believe that God is doing it as often as people jump from church, from church to church. People bounce all the time and they say, hey, the Lord's leading us here, then he let us there, then he let us back over there, then he let us over here, then he, let, then he had to stay home for a while, then he wanted us to go back to church. 
If God's that way, God is flaky and fickle and inconsistent. You, you'd read stories in the Bible. If that's the way God was, that God told Abraham to leave home and go to a place, and he said, no, I actually go back home and stay there for a while, and actually I want you to go over here, or no, I want you to build a boat, you know, actually tear that down. I want you to build, I, I want you to build a vehicle. No, actually tear that down. I want you to build a tower. You know, I, I haven't said, that, that's not the God that we see in the Bible. He sets a course, and then lets, he's faithful to that direction. So don't be flaky and then blame it on the Lord because he's not flaky. Don't be fickle and bounce all over and, and blame it on the Lord. I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint me. What, what did the early church do? They continued steadfastly. They, they continued steadfastly. And when we think about the early church, sometimes, now obviously we're learning from it, so there's things that we need to learn, but to think that they had everything and it was smooth sailing in paradise, that, that's not consistent with what we read about. They had opportunities to be offended. They had opportunities to be disappointed and say, you know what, I'm done with this. But you know what they did? They continued steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. You know, they had a problem with the feeding program going out to the widows where some of the widows weren't getting fed. They were getting skipped over in favor of other people. You think that'd be reason to get offended and say, you know, I'm, I'm done with these people. You find out that they're not feeding your elderly mother who's been widowed. What do you, mom, you, what do you mean you haven't been fed in a, in, a, in a week or two weeks? Or if you're the elderly widow and they keep skipping over you in favor of somebody else, you don't think that's an excuse to get upset or you don't have grounds? Now, obviously they had complaints and they had to work through it, but you know what they did? They continued steadfastly. They had a situation where people were saying that they gave more money than they actually gave. Being hypocrites, bragging about how generous they are, talking about the money that they're throwing around when it wasn't even the truth. That's, that's grounds to be upset. Grounds, hey, you know what, these stinking hypocrites, I'm done with these people. But they continued steadfastly. They had people dropping dead in the church when they were confronted on, the, on those issues. Reason to say, you know what, I think I'm going to maybe find a different thing to be involved with. But you know what they did? They continued steadfastly. There was persecution from outside the church. They continued steadfastly. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about commitment. And oftentimes, people will say they're avoiding legalism. I don't want to be legalistic. What they really don't want to do is be committed. I, I, you know, I don't want to be legalistic. No, you just don't want to be committed. In my marriage, you know, when I got married to Beth, we, we did the vows. We did the thing, you know, till, till death do us part, forsaking all others, holding only to you. you know, when we did that, what were we expressing? It wasn't like, it wasn't, it wasn't legalism. Forsaking all others, that sounds kind of, sounds a little legalistic to me. I don't know. It seems, uh, forsaking all, holding only to, to her? I mean, it, it was commitment. It, was, it wasn't legalism, it was commitment. And it was because there was a covenant. We were forming a covenant. Well, we're coming into a new covenant with the Lord. And so those, some of those same principles apply. That I'm not just in it because I, I like certain things and how it pleases me. A covenant is I am yours and you are mine. I, I'm giving up my rights to serve you and I receive the benefits of you serving me. A covenant, a covenant relationship. Instead of approaching church, I mean, people... I recently heard about someone not liking the church because their guest services weren't up to par. I mean, the fact that we even had, didn't have to have guest services to keep people happy shows a, shows a level of immaturity. Sort of commitment, covenant. And when we enter into a covenant, you know, we teach this when we do premarital counseling or talk about marriage. 
a covenant in marriage is not just a, a relationship between a husband and wife, that God is involved in that covenant, that your loyalty to your spouse is also loyalty to God. And when you are disloyal to your spouse, you're not just being disloyal to them, you're being disloyal to God because you formed a covenant and all three of you are involved in that covenant. So if I were to cheat on my wife, I would also be cheating on God because I formed that covenant and said, I'll, I'll be faithful. Amen? When we enter into the covenant with the, the new covenant with the Lord, it's very similar. That we, we form a covenant with God, but we're also saying, you know, I'm part of this family. And as I commit myself to you, Father, I'm also committing myself to the family of, of God. That it's woven, it's woven together. When Jesus was asked about the first and greatest commandment, what's the greatest commandment? Did he stop at one or could he not mention one without mentioning the other? You got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But the second one, it's, it's like the first one, to love your neighbor as, as yourself. They're woven together because of the covenant that we're entering into. Jesus said, if you love me, we're supposed to love one another. They'll know that we're his disciples by what? By how loud we sing praise songs and tell about how much we love God? No, they'll know that we love him. How? By the way that we love one another. It's all, it's all woven together. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives on us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. No one's ever seen God, but they see the expression of the love of God. How? Through us, that we are an expression of God's love. Now, one of the ways that love is expressed is through faithfulness and commitment. True? That you, you express love oftentimes by being faithful. God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Why? Why won't he do that? Because he loves you. So he says, I'll, I'll never leave. He's faithful. So if the love of God is to be on display through, through our lives, people should see commitment. Commitment in our families, commitment in the family, in the family of God. Commitment and love are linked together. If, if I told you that I was part of a, a softball team, and then as I'm talking about the softball team, you, and you said, hey, you know, uh, when are your games? You know, tell me a little bit about it. I said, I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm kind of hit and miss. I don't go to the practice. Um, and sometimes I just show up for the game. Sometimes I don't. It just kind of depends what else I have going on. I, I haven't expressed whether I like or dislike softball. All I've expressed is my commitment level. But from that, you're going to walk away saying, hey, that guy doesn't seem to like softball very much. I don't, I don't even know why he's a part of the team. It doesn't seem. But if we're talking about softball, hey, if I told you I'm part of a softball team, and let me tell you, I don't miss a game. I, don't, I show up half an hour early. I'm at every practice. I'm, I just like to go to league meetings. Even if our team doesn't make the playoffs, I go to all the playoff games to watch the other teams in the league. I, I don't miss a thing. I don't have to tell you that I love softball. As I talk about my commitment level, you walk away going, man, that guy seems to love softball. I, I didn't say anything about loving it. I just talked about how committed, how devoted I am, and you automatically deduce the love that goes along with that because that commitment is an expression. You with me? So there needs to be... If, 
His love is to be brought to full expression in our lives so people can get a taste of what the love of God is like. A significant part of that, people should see that we are devoted, faithful people that don't flip-flop all around and are the most up-and-down people in the entire community that we continue steadfastly. It should be on display in our families, in our commitments between husbands and wives and parents and children, that we continue steadfastly. Do we have issues we need to work through? Absolutely, but we continue steadfastly in the body of Christ. You shouldn't have people dividing and going over here and going over there and all, all over the place. That we should be the most loyal, committed, faithful people. Why? Because God's love is to be brought to manifestation through us. And if people haven't seen God, they see us and they see, man, low commitment, low faithfulness. They are all over the place. Unfaithful people, they can't help but read into that what God is like. They continued steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. Continued steadfastly in what? Verse 42 again. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. You know, there's debate about the breaking of bread aspect. If it's talking about communion or if it's talking about uh, meals together going along with the fellowship. But in these verses that we, we read, I want to highlight four basic disciplines. So there's the apostles' doctrine. We could say that's studying the word of God, Bible study, prayer, fellowship. And a couple of verses later, it talks about how they sold things and they gave so that nobody was in need. Giving, serving, living beyond yourself, investing in others, not being selfish. Four basic spiritual disciplines that if you go through our new believers class or, or part of growth track, that's one of the things that we talk about. We talk about like it's a four-legged chair or a, a four-legged table. Those four basic disciplines. Now there's, there's other disciplines to add on top of that, but they are basic. They are the base to build on top of. You need to spend time in God's word. You need to spend time in prayer. You need to spend time in Christian fellowship and you need to be a giver. You need to be a server. Almost every time people's walk with the Lord starts to get unstable and unsteady, man, something's wrong. I feel like I'm messing up. Things aren't right. If you'll go back and examine those four basic disciplines, almost every time I can guarantee that there's one or more of those that are coming up short. And just like a table or chair starts getting wobbly, it's because there's a problem with one of the legs. One of the legs isn't doing what it's supposed, what it's supposed to do. And you see all four of those in these verses. So I want to talk about each of them, three of them very quickly, and then really focus in on, on one of them. The first two, there is a private practice and a corporate practice. The first one, Doctrine. They were devoted to the word of God, learning, good Bible teaching. You need to spend time being taught the word of God, and you need to spend time to continue steadfastly, corporately and privately, hiding God's word in your heart. Spend time every day reading the Bible. Spend time like you are now, listening to Bible teaching. Not just on Sundays, sprinkle it throughout your week. Listen to messages online or podcasts. Find, find good teachers, people that you trust to pour into you. They continued steadfastly in good, sound Bible teaching doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says this. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. It's talking about a warning for the last days, the days that you and I are living in, 
that there's going to be an increase in deceptive teachings. People are going to fall away from the true faith and then follow these weird teachings, these, these spin-offs that, that warp and pervert the word of God. How can you avoid that? By getting your roots down and being consistent to continue steadfastly in the word of God and good sound Bible teaching. It needs to be a regular part, not just once in a while. They continued steadfastly. What, how, what's your Bible study look like? What are you listening to? What are you reading? How are you getting God's word into your heart? This is one of the, the main factors that the early church was built on. The next one was prayer. Again, privately and corporately. When there's times of corporate prayer, like this Wednesday night, third Wednesday of the month, upstairs auditorium, we're gonna spend time praying together as a church family. They continued steadfastly praying together corporately and also privately. You know, these two, these two disciplines, studying God's word in time and prayer, that, that really makes up the secret place. Fellowship with the Lord, your time alone, your time alone with the Lord, reading God's word, meditating on the word of God, spending time in prayer, listening for the voice of God. You've got to spend time in the secret place on a regular basis to have time alone with God. That's where you're developed. It's where you're molded and shaped and, and become the man of God, the woman of God that he wants you to be. It's where, where he births things in you, speaks to you. You need to have time in the secret place. In chapter four, verse 13, it says this, Acts chapter four, talking about the officials that the disciples were brought in front of. It says, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Another translation says they were unlearned and ignorant. And they marveled, they realized that they had been with Jesus. They, they had the disciples in front of them and said, these guys are ignorant, they're unlearned, they're not trained, but man, there's something about them we can tell. These guys have been with Jesus. There's something about people that actually spend time in the secret place. They actually have intimacy with the Lord. They invest in that relationship. They spend time in the word of God. There's a freshness to their walk with the Lord. It's like the fragrance of the secret place stays on them. And you can just, you can just tell this is real to them. They really know the Lord. That's the kind of people that we want to be, that we need to be. And the only way it's accomplished is investing in time in the secret place. The, the next one is they, they sold their possessions. They, were, they cared about what was going on in other people's lives, so giving and serving. They continued steadfastly giving and serving. You, you need to be serving in the body of Christ. Not just I did serve. It's something they continued. Yeah, I used to serve. I was super involved. They continued steadfastly Serving, serving in the church and giving. Yeah, no, I, I, gave, I gave really generously last year. They continued steadfastly. It wasn't just something they had done. They were prior participants. It, it was a continuing thing in their lives. You have gifts. You have certain abilities that the body of Christ needs. We need you doing what only you can do, filling a role in the body of Christ for us to be the church that God has called us to be. As you mature, there shouldn't be Idle people in the body of Christ. Idle and mature are, are opposites. That you need to be serving. You need to find a place to serve, continuing steadfastly in serving and, and in giving. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as it's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and God moving in that Corinthian church, it uses the analogy of the physical body, how each different part has a gift. But when it's talking about the body, unity Unity is part of that, right? The, the, the unity to be able to 
Your body's not going to function with body parts just kind of running all over the place and disengaging. So the environment that God wants to pour out of spirit is people that are unified and willing and willing to serve. You need to find a place to serve, continue steadfastly, use your gifts, develop your gifts, and be someone who gives. They continued steadfastly. And the fourth one that I want to spend a little more time with is they continued in fellowship. You know, I, I think that we undervalue the environment that we're in right now. We undervalue what a privilege it is to be part of the church, part of the family of God. And when you undervalue something, you don't care for it. One of the easiest ways to get someone to neglect and allow something to fall into disrepair is to convince them that that thing doesn't have a whole lot of value. And if you can convince them that it doesn't have a whole lot of value, the disrepair and the neglect almost happen as a natural byproduct. I believe that's been a strategy of the enemy to get people to disvalue what it means to be a part of the family of God, to get to be a part of the church. And as a, as a result of people disvaluing it, disrepair, neglect, the church isn't what God has called it, what it's called it to be. Fellowship. The, the word in the Greek is koinonia. It's this rich fellowship, a unique fellowship that we have in the body of Christ. Let, let me read you from 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. It says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. He's talking about fellowship that your fellowship could be with Jesus, could be with a father and be with us, that the family of believers, this, this unique relationship in the body of Christ to be a part of the church. A few verses later, he says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, what's one of the results of that? What's one of the things that happens? He says, if I walk in the light as he is in the light, if I'm walking in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So one of the things that we can learn from that verse is fellowship with one another. Real fellowship with other believers is an indication that I'm walking in the light. If I walk in the light as he is in the light, I have fellowship. So if I don't have fellowship with other believers... I'm not walking in the light. There should be a red flag. Something's off. If I'm not experiencing real fellowship with other men and women of God, am I walking in the light? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with other believers. Another thing we can learn from that is if I'm not walking in the light, if I'm not walking in holiness, it's going to prevent me from having fellowship, that sin breaks fellowship. One of the results of sin is that it destroys Koinonia. It destroys this fellowship that we have access to as believers. It destroys fellowship with one another, and it destroys fellowship with the Lord. You know, imagine if, if I had a best friend, and we, I mean, we were tight. We loved the Lord together. We, we did things for fun together. We would spend time worshiping and praying, but also hunting and fishing. I mean, we were just super, super close. There was genuine fellowship between us. But then... Suppose he starts to get tangled up in sin. He starts drinking. He starts doing things that go against the word of God. What's going to happen to how close we are, our, our union, our fellowship? 
Well, I, I can try to correct him. I can try to say, hey, you need to get on track. But if he refuses, then one of two things is going to happen. And they both involve a break in fellowship. Either I'm going to have to break my fellowship with him. I, I, can't, I can't be a part of that. Or I'm going to stay with him and it's going to break my fellowship with the Lord. But one way or another, sin destroys fellowship. And, and again, we have downplayed or undervalued the fellowship that we have in the body of Christ. The early church valued it. They protected it. They cherished the community that we have as sons and daughters of God. I, I want to look at a passage of scripture where we get a peek into the, in, the early church and how they handled issues. And it shows just how much they valued the family of God. You protect what you value. If you don't value it, you're not going to offer much protection. But when you really value and cherish something, you realize, man, this is, this is too valuable just to, to make it vulnerable. You protect it. And that's what they did. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They saw being a part of the church as a privilege. Not, not an obligation. Sometimes in the modern church, when people come to church, they feel like they have just blessed everybody by coming. They've blessed the Lord by coming. And that, that's true in part. But we've got to understand it is a privilege and a blessing to get to be a part of the body of Christ. To get to come to church, it is an honor and a privilege. And we have to understand it. have to understand it as this, this is holy. This is holy. This is special. This is the family of God. And we've got to see it as that and cherish it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This will be an un, unpopular passage of Scripture. Just a warning. Starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we're getting to see how much they valued the body of believers and how holy the church is. Paul says, I've heard of a situation in your church where you've got someone who's engaged in sexual immorality. They're not repentant. They're just living this lifestyle of, of sin. And he says, I've heard about it. And you guys are puffed up. Or another translation says, you guys are proud when you should be ashamed. See, the, the church in Corinth was proud of of how tolerant they were, of how progressive they were. That even though people are dealing with a sin, this guy's sleeping with his dad's wife, that they're, they're so loving and kind that they're just kind of over, overlooking it and proud of their acceptance 
proud of their tolerance. Does that sound like anything that the modern church is dealing with? That there's a level of pride of how tolerant they are of people that are in gross and obvious sin, people that are unrepentant in their lives, and we're, we're just proud of how loving and kind we would just tolerate. That goes against how the church was founded. It goes against the word of God. The church can't be what the church has been called to be with that kind of attitude. And a lot of people have this because of love, anything goes. The, the church is not an environment where it's just an anything goes environment at the name of love. It's because of love that not anything goes. I have four daughters who I love with all of my heart. And because I love them so much, not anything goes. There's certain places my kids aren't going. There's certain people my kids aren't spending time with, not because I don't love them, but because I do love them. I'm grabbing their phone and I'm looking through things that they've looked at. They've got certain limits. I'm reading their text messages. If you text my daughters, just know that you're also texting me. Because, because I love them. There are guidelines and standards because of how deep my love is for my kids. It's not just anything goes. But sometimes people get offended or bent out of shape when you try to apply some kind of standards in the body, in the body of Christ. We're, we want to be like the early church. This is the way that the early church operated. He said to turn them over to Satan. He's talking about kicking this person out of the church. Uh, that's, not very, that's not very loving. I mean, shouldn't we just be accepting and, and tolerant? Well, apparently not. There, there's, a, there's a standard there. He says, turn them over to Satan. Now, when he says, turn them over to Satan, he's talking about removing them. Remove, he's, not, he's not allowed to be here anymore. Now, again, the church was a privilege, and this was gonna help him learn it's a privilege to be in church. It's not like uh, out-of-school suspension in high school. I don't know if you ever had out-of-school suspension. I remember one time I got punished. They told me I had OSS. I was suspended. I couldn't come to school anymore. I thought, that's my, that's my punishment? Okay, you guys might want to reconsider <laughs> how, how, you're, how you're punishing us because you just motivated me to do whatever I did all over again. So it wasn't like, oh, awesome. I don't have to come to church anymore. This, this person was straddling the fence of trying to enjoy the benefits of being a believer and also enjoy what sin had to offer. He said, if, that, if that's what you want to do, just go all in on sin. You, we're going to remove you for your own benefit. It, it wasn't punitive. It wasn't just to punish this person. He says, for the destruction of his flesh. He, he wanted him, hopefully, to come to a prodigal son moment where he realizes, man, I've, I've gone all in on this sinful lifestyle. It's empty. Where I belong is back with the Father. That, that was the point of it. And if you read 2 Corinthians in Paul's next letter, he actually restores this person back to the church. So apparently it was effective. It worked. He put him out of the church. You're not going to get to enjoy the benefits of both worlds. You're going to have to pick a side and be all in on one, on one or the other. He said to turn them over, turn them over to Satan. It's, it's a privilege to be a part of the body of Christ. Let's read the next couple of verses. Verse 6 says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, that was a lot of leaven talk. He's, he's using the analogy that Jesus used 
of how a little bit of leaven spreads through the whole lump. A little bit of yeast affects the whole lump of dough and applying it to sin. That when you allow sin, this stuff spreads. It contaminates. You can't just allow it and overlook it and say it's not that big of a deal. We're willing to tolerate it because it's going to spread. It won't stay isolated. And what you condone, you passively promote. What you say is not a big deal. I know, I know he's sleeping around. I know he's got sexual misconduct and all this stuff. It's really not that big of a deal. Let's just kind of overlook it. When you, when you express either intentionally or unintentionally that it's not that big of a deal, what you've also done is you've promoted it to people saying it's not that big of a deal. That there should be a standard in the body of Christ. He was saying it's important who we spend time with. So two reasons he said this person is no longer allowed to be a part of the, of the church fellowship. One was for that guy's own good. Hopefully he's going to come to that moment and repent. Hopefully he's going to hit rock bottom and realize, man, sin is not the way to go. I need the Lord. But a second reason was for the sake of the body. This thing wouldn't spread and contaminate and bring more people. We're not going to tolerate it because people are going to think this, this is tolerated when it's not tolerable. We, we've talked about this before, but the people you spend time with, it matters. It, it, there is an influence you can't help but be affected by the people that you have fellowship with. It, it's, there's a level where you are impacted in the natural, but there's also a spiritual component where there's, there's impartation. You become like the people that you are around. And it can either be an incredible blessing when you surround yourself with godly men and women, or it can ruin your life if you allow fellowship with people that have no interest in holiness. Let, let me read a couple of Proverbs to you. Proverbs 22, verse 24 says, don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul. Don't be friends with angry people. It's, he's using anger as a, an illustration, but you could put any, any sinful characteristic here. Don't be friends with a drunkard. Don't be friends with a pervert. Don't, don't have close fellowship with people that are gossips. Why? Because you'll learn to be like them. And what, what will happen? You're endangering your soul. You are putting yourself in a dangerous situation by linking yourself up with someone who's contaminated and a little leaven spreads through the, spreads through the whole lump. They, you're going to become like that person and put your soul in danger. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer will suffer harm. It works good and bad. You walk with fools and become a fool and suffer their fate, or you can walk with the wise and that you receive an impartation and become wise yourself. It matters who you are around, and there are times where someone needs to put out, be, be put out from fellowship, even in the church, especially in the church. We could go to Joshua chapter 7 and read about a guy named Achan who sinned, who disobeyed the word of God. You can read the story. And it didn't just affect him. It affected the entire people of God. Other people were affected by what he was trying to hide in his whole, whole own life. Your sin affects the rest of us. There, there's got to be a standard that we hold, that we hold one another to. And it's not, it's not, we're not trying to become judgy of one another. We want to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And it's a maturity, a spiritual maturity that doesn't hate that idea of being held accountable, but longs to be held accountable. And we want to get our place, ourselves to a place of maturity where we want to be held accountable. I want to walk in holiness. If you see me slipping, I want you to point out, don't, don't let me veer off course. I don't want to veer off course. 
I've got a group of guys that I get to spend time with. And they're, they're men that love the Lord, that want to walk in holiness. Sometimes we have weekends that we go away and just spend time together. I like spending time with guys like that. If we're on one of those little getaways and I pull out <laughs> nudie magazines or... <laughs> Felt like an old man saying that. <laughs> or, you know, uh, a bottle of whiskey or something. You know what those guys are going to do? They're going to shame me, and rightly so. What are you doing? They're going to be disappointed, and they're going to hold me accountable. I want to spend time. I don't want guys that if I do that, they high-five me and say, yeah, I was hoping someone would bring those, those kinds of things. I want people around me that hold me, hold me to a stand. It's a mature person that doesn't hear a message like this and say, man, we're talking about standards and holiness. I, we, we need to be held to that kind of level of accountability. And Paul was establishing this in the early church as the way to conduct themselves. There's a time where people, if they're causing trouble or endangering the community, that you put them out. Let, let me read you Titus chapter three, verse 10. It says, if people are causing divisions among you, give them a first warning and a second. After that, what's he say? Have nothing more to do with them. I gave you a warning. I warned you a second time. You're, you're being a trouble. You're hurting the body. That there's a standard in the body of Christ. Verse nine, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. He says, I... I when I said don't be with immoral people, I wasn't talking about the people of this world. That's what he's telling them. He said, you'd have, to, you'd have to leave the world to avoid people like that altogether. The people of the world, we can expect to be worldly because they are worldly. It's not fair to hold people that don't know Jesus to the standard of people inside, inside the church. He said, I'm not talking about that. We're not looking to judge people outside the church. He said, but inside the church, if there's someone that claims that they are a brother, meaning a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they're allowing sin in their life. And I'm not talking about they've got a struggle that they're asking for help with and they're working through those issues and they're moving towards holiness. People that are okay with sin in their life and they're not looking to get rid of it. He said, don't even eat with people like that. If they say they're a Christian, but they're allowing sin in their lives, don't even have a meal with them. That, that's strict. That's a high standard that he's calling us to. He's giving us instruction with how to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ. One, for their benefit, because you know what? It's, it's a blessing to have dinner with you. It's a blessing to get to have fellowship with you. If you're a man of God or a woman of God, it's a privilege for someone to spend time with you. And that person loses that privilege. So you're, you're helping to hold them accountable, but you're also insulating your life and protecting because a little leaven, he said, spreads through, spreads through the whole lump. Verse 12. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church. So the whole, hey, let's not be judgmental. There is a time where we're supposed to judge. Where we're supposed to look at people's lives and say, this is wrong, this is right. This is okay, this has to change. He's saying there's a responsibility in the church to hold each other accountable. Again, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. 
God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. You remember when you were a kid and your parents disciplined you and you thought that they hated you? They're so mean. I can't believe you hate me. You're making me go to my room or miss dinner. They're going to spank you or whatever. You felt like it was hatred and cruelty because you were a child. And then if you are a parent now, as you matured, you understand when you discipline your child, it's not hatred. It's because you're trying to help them. You're helping them move beyond. It's a mature perspective that understands discipline like this is out of love and it helps people move forward and rise higher. It's an immature, an immature standpoint, an immature vantage point that sees standards and discipline as hatred. It's a little kid that says, oh, you hate me because you're disciplining. Maturity understands, no, discipline's because of love. Discipline is so I can help become the best version of myself to keep myself out out of danger. And again, we're not trying to create a culture where we're nitpicking each other and judging each other all the time, but we are trying to create a culture of holiness where we hold each other to a standard. And when people just want to indulge in sin and not get it out of their lives, that, that shouldn't be tolerated in the body of Christ. It won't be tolerated in this body of Christ. Amen? That's all, that's all of us working together. I would love to have a better amen out of that. Amen that there's a standard of holiness that we're not disappointed about, that we're excited about. So you shouldn't be puffed up. You shouldn't be excited about your tolerance for sin. You should be ashamed of your tolerance for sin, excited about a standard of, of holiness, devoted to one another and in godly love. For, for the church to be the powerful force that we see in the book of Acts, that the early church was, there's got to be unity. And unity around what? Unity around the word of God and being the people of God that he's, that he's called us to be. They were steadfast, steadfast, devoted, continuing steadfast. We won't take time to go there, but this, this is such an important thing. Again, it's been undervalued, and you can see where people, people don't protect what they don't value. They allow it to go into disrepair what they don't value. The, the body of Christ is holy. So we say Psalm 92, those who are planted in the house of God, they flourish. This is a unique, holy environment. That's why Jesus gives us instruction how to maintain healthy relationships. Matthew chapter 18, I'd encourage you to study it. It talks about when you have an issue with someone, because you're going to have an issue with somebody. In Matthew chapter 18, he says, when you do, how are you supposed to handle it? Social media, obviously, right? You start telling people, you get as many people on your side and hopefully you can outweigh the, the group that that person is able to run. No, you're supposed to go to that person. If you have an issue, someone's offended you, someone did you wrong, you're upset with how someone said something, you go to that person. You go to that person you talk about. And if that doesn't resolve it, you bring someone else from the body of Christ. And the two of you, it gives step-by-step -step approach. You're not supposed to talk about it with other people and become a gossip and stir up trouble and let it spread. You become one of those people that needs to be excused from the body. It, you get a warning, a second warning, according to Titus chapter 3, and we're done with you. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. We, again, we won't go there, but Jesus talks about relationships being so valuable. He says, if you come to the temple and you've got a sacrifice, you're ready to honor God, you're ready to worship, you're ready to obey, but as you get to ready to worship, you remember, ah, Steve and I aren't right. Roberta and I have that issue going on, whoever. 
you realize, man, you've got something with a brother. You know what he says? He doesn't say, well, go ahead and worship me because that's the most important thing. And then after you, you know, worship me real good, then you can go and straighten out your issues. He says, just leave the sacrifice. Drop everything. Drop everything. If you, what you need to do is go and get right with that person. Go apologize. Go hash it out. Work your way through Matthew 18. Talk to them about that issue. And once you guys are good, then come back and worship me. God doesn't even want to receive your worship until you're in right relationship with your brothers and sisters. It's, it's, that, it's that important. We've got to raise our level of value in the body of Christ. What a privilege it is to be a part of a family like this when we're operating the way that we should be operating. They continued steadfast in studying the word of God, continued steadfast in prayer, in fellowship, and in serving or giving. My family used to have a pet lizard. Years ago, we had this little, some kind of leopard, leopard gecko or something. Its name was Apple, Apple the lizard. I, I didn't name it. And so Apple, Apple ate uh, crickets, and uh, mealworms and those kinds of things. And so we'd go to the pet store and we'd get crickets and Apple would be, you know, living a, a happy little lizard life. But then we'd hit a little stretch where we'd forget to go get crickets. We wouldn't get crickets and this would kind of go on for a while until we noticed, man, have you seen Apple lately? Ugh. He doesn't look good. He's like shriveled up looking. Apple looks more like an apple core. <laughs> He's just... He doesn't look good. We, we've, got, right, we've got to go get some crickets and stuff. So we'd go and we'd get stuff for him to eat and he'd be almost, I mean, almost lifeless. My wife would give this like heroic effort to nurse Apple back to life. She'd take tweezers and the Apple would just be lethargic, wouldn't even chase down a cricket. She would take tweezers and entice Apple to open his mouth and then force feed him these crickets and just nurse. She'd spend hours with, with Apple. I'd ask the kids, have you, have you seen your mom? Where, it, she's up taking care of Apple, huh? Okay. She'd nurse Apple back, back to health and he'd be a happy little lizard again. He'd eat crickets and then we'd get busy and we'd forget, forget to buy crickets again. And we'd notice Apple was starting to shrivel up, didn't look so healthy. Eyes were kind of like fogging over. Oh my goodness, we need, to get, we need to get crickets again. So she'd do the same. She'd nurse them back to health, get them healthy and strong. And then we'd, we'd go through that cycle over and over again until one time she's trying to nurse them back to health and despite her efforts, Apple's no longer with us anymore. Just couldn't, couldn't pull them out of that, out of that. It's really not that sad. It's just a, just a lizard. He, he's, he died. But sometimes people treat their spiritual walk like, like Apple the lizard. That they'll, they'll be doing good. They'll be doing okay. But then they'll begin to neglect just some of the basics. They'll allow themselves to get malnourished. They won't spend time in the word of God. They won't be careful about the fellowship that they keep. They won't be spending time in prayer. And they'll get themselves so weak and so in distress in a bad situation. Their marriage is falling apart. They're tangled up in sin. They've gone off the rails. And they'll come to the body of Christ, to me or to you, to someone in the church. And they'll, they'll and man, I'm in, I'm in a bad spot. And so we'll care for them and we'll nourish them and we'll get them healthy again and they're doing good and they'll continue for a while, but then they'll let themselves get malnourished again and they'll run through that cycle over and over again and you never know when you're gonna dip to a point where you're not able to recover from or where people aren't gonna be able to nurse you back to health. What would have been better for Apple and what would be better for you and I is to continue steadfast instead of running hot and cold and up and down and allowing those cycles to happen in our life, just to discipline ourselves to continue 
steadfast in doctrine, to steadfast in the word of God, feeding ourselves day in, constant, devoted, to have a resolve to spend time in prayer, spend time investing in relationships with godly men and women, to make it a priority, to be a giver, to be someone who serves. I'm not gonna allow myself to get ingrown and selfish. I'm going to be outward, live for other people, to continue steadfast in those areas. That's one of the things that the early church was built on. And if we wanna get back to what the early church was like, we've got to continue steadfast, to have a level of commitment. And again, not legalism, commitment, covenant. And what what I wanna do this morning is to celebrate the covenant that we have by receiving communion. In just a moment, we'll celebrate communion together. The blood of Jesus, the new covenant that brings us into the family of God. And again, in this covenant, we're committed to him. There's also a commitment to one another. I come to him, he gets to be my father. I'm adopted into his family. You know what that means? We're, We're all part of the same family. The same blood that redeemed me, redeemed you. Same blood that redeems you, redeemed me, we're, we're, we're in this together. And so it's that, that covenant aspect. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord. In this, in this passage, as Paul is talking about the church, he talks about those inside and those who are outside. And in those two categories, he categorizes everyone on the planet. And it's still that way today. You're either inside the church or you're outside the church. You either have a relationship with God through Jesus or you don't. And there's no other possible category to be in. And the only way to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, is through Jesus. He is the gate. He is the way. He's the one that you have to come through, through relationship, accepting him as Lord and Savior. And if you are on the outside of the body of Christ this morning, you don't have to stay there. You can come in, be a part of the family, to know that you're forgiven and you're free. There's only one way to do that, accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. If that's you, don't don't remain on the outside. Don't be the people who are outside the church. Come into the church, the family of God through Jesus. Or maybe at one time you accepted Jesus, but you've drifted, you've allowed your heart to grow cold, tangled up in sin, you got hurt, just caught up with life, whatever it is, you know you're not where you should be in your walk with the Lord. You need to recommit your life to Jesus. If you fall into either one of those categories, you need to accept Jesus as Savior or recommit your life to serving him. Would you put your hand up nice and high so I can pray with you this morning? You need to accept Jesus as your Savior or you need to recommit your life to serving him. You're on on the outside, but you want to be on the inside and you want to change that today. Would you put your hand up so I can pray with you? Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.